With that, if you will open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Today, uh, man, we are going to continue uh, to look at how the overflow of faith leads to the practical application of wisdom in the midst of trials. Uh, even as we just prayed, man, we, we see we have a brother and sister in Christ who are walking through a trial. And we all know that there are seasons in life. Some of you right now, I would probably argue all of us to varying degrees are walking through trials. And so what are we going to do with that? How are we going to uh, uh, carry wisdom that, that leads to, uh, man, this practical application of faith in our lives? And so if you remember from our time, really starting the series last week, uh, I shared that James, which is, it, it, James, if you were to put it in a category of Scripture, it is a book of wisdom that, that really presses active faith. It's not just, hey, here's some uh, coffee cup verses or here's some just things that will make you feel good. There are many things in, the, in this letter that are going to, man, really just kind of hit us uh, in the heart. They're going to bring a lot of conviction um, and I mean, which is really good for our lives, but it is a book of wisdom that presses this active faith. But I shared as we started, because I think because we are naturally doers, right? Like when we and, and that is by nature, really, uh, honestly, often how many of us, probably all of us were raised. Uh, it's this uh, we are doers for identity, not from our identity, right? So we, the, the gospel calls you to do in light of who Jesus says you are. But oftentimes when we hear the word do or be a doer, it is so that you can gain some sort of identity. You can uh, aspire to hold some value that you don't believe you can get anywhere else. But the good news of Jesus is, man, your value is found solely in him and him alone. And so my hope is that as we journey through this book, really what we would begin to understand is that the implications of the good news, uh, that they would be revealed in such a way that we would experience and know not only this good news of the gospel, that it wouldn't be just some tagline or some ticket that we would punch for eternity, but that it would be the real transformative power of grace that would give us even the right heart to begin to obey what God is going to call us to in His Word. You see, we saw this last week when James shares that he says, look, we sh- you should count it all joy, which goes against everything that our heart really wants, that are uh, usually what we're bent towards, but we should count it all joy when we experience trials. Knowing, James says, that through the testing of our faith, he says two things, steadfastness, which is fortitude, and maturity begin to be developed. But what I think and really is maybe at times for us more pertinent is what he responds with after saying that. You see, because when we talk about fortitude or steadfastness or, man, a, a, another definition of it is toughness, like we kind of get that, right? I, I know for me, like most of the time as a parent, like when my kid falls on the ground, what do I tell him? Hey, get up and just be tough. Because that's what I was told, right? Like dust it off. You're not bleeding. I've had worse cuts on my eyeball, Kyle. Like that's what I was told as a kid. Like get up. Be tough, move on, grow up. And so we get uh, uh, really a, a, an unhealthy version of that 
But really what I love is that at the beginning of James 1, the the source of what James is talking about, the source of our response to trials is not found in being just toughening up and just growing up, right? And rising above. Rather, it's in asking for wisdom in the moment, knowing that God will give generously to those who ask in faith. You see, the reality is, is that you can and we often do respond to trials in a lot of ways that while diligent are reactive, double minded and ultimately foolish. Whereas faith in the person and work of Jesus leads to a diligence that is proactive. Because it's founded in the good news of the gospel. It is dependent because he is our only source of hope. And as we see in the passage, it's actually wise. It's this type of proactive and dependent need for wisdom that leads us into the next part of the passage where we're going to find that James, is he's going to continue to build out how to respond to trials with this active faith. And what he's going to do today is he's going to combat three different lies. These three lies, uh, man, they, they happen in a variety of seasons of life. But man, specifically when we experience trials, uh, and to those that James is writing, this is what they're dealing with. And so he's going to combat these trials by combating these three lies. And the three lies are as follows. First, money or riches will fix your problems. Secondly... In the midst of trials, giving yourself over to the numbing power of sin will mask your problems and cause you and give you the ability or the freedom to blame others. That's a lie. And then finally, because you are in this trial and because what James is going to talk about, oftentimes we'll think God is tempting us. God must not then be very good. And so we should put our faith in ourselves as our own gods. I shared it last week. Like you have to, when you live this way unwisely, you have to look out for who? I got to look out for me, myself, and I. And so with that, let's begin with line number one by reading verses 9 through 11. James says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, so following our time last week where uh, James lays out the need to ask for wisdom. What we get here is this paradox in verses 9 through 11. Now, now a paradox is a statement that when you hear it up front, it seems contradictory, but it becomes increasingly true when you meditate upon it. As you begin to understand it, as it begins to reveal itself. So an example of that uh, that we could uh, move to is giving is receiving, right? Now, if you tell a child giving is receiving, what are they going to do? They're going to be like, you're a liar, right? Because it's all about receiving, right? If you, But if you tell an adult... Depending on the adult, right? Like, there's this understanding as you grow, like, no, man, there's something about being able to give to others that, man, I actually receive something that's far, man, at times far greater than than a gift that's given to me. And just getting and receiving something. 
And so this paradox, when read, when we hear these words, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, man, when read separate from the context of the passage, as you read, he's talking about, if you want wisdom, ask of God, but don't be double-minded. Oh, and let's talk about the rich and the poor. Where in the world is he going? But remember, James is not presenting randomness. He's seeking to combat the lies that are attached to the suffering being experienced by these Jewish Christians that are scattered scattered abroad in the first century. Remember the diaspora that I talked about. uh, They have not only been persecuted and scattered geographically, which again was a fulfillment of Acts 1 verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. But also... They've been swindled, they've been taken advantage of financially, and really, they're in many cases seen to hold less value than a slave. You see, these are likely an impoverished people who really, because they're likely like us, uh, they would like nothing more, they would long for nothing more than to have the financial means so that they might better deal with the struggle that they find themselves in. You see, the thought or the lie is, if we just had money, we wouldn't have the suffering we have now. Right? It's, man, for us today, like, money fixes everything. Y'all are like, no, it doesn't. That's what we're going to talk about. But that's what the culture says, right? The culture says just throw money at it. We've got enough. And if not, guess what? We just make some more, right? Like, it, like we just throw it at it. Money will fix it. But when we do this, especially in terms of suffering and beginning to believe like, man, if I could just get ahead in terms of my finances, then I wouldn't be suffering. I wouldn't be experiencing trials because I could almost buy my way out. It's looking to money for identity and security. And I remember growing up like I really, really struggled with this. I remember growing up, we, we didn't have a ton, but I remember like I would dream, I would daydream. I'd be like, man, like for me, it was like simple things. Like if I could just live in a house that didn't have to be moved in on wheels, right? Like I'm, I'm good, you know, like, and like if I didn't, I remember the biggest fight me and my mother ever had was when she took me to get a cell phone and we got there and her credit wasn't good enough. And so she said, well, you're only going to get a prepaid phone. And I flipped and told her no. In my pride, I didn't get a phone until I was 18 because I was like, I'm not getting a prepaid phone because what if I run out of minutes? People are going to look down on me. They're going to make fun of me. There were countless times that, man, if I, I would believe if we just had money, I wouldn't have the struggles I currently have. Or at least in the midst of the struggle, I would have money. You see, in great paradox fashion, and James reveals to us the upside-down truth of the kingdom. What he says, he says, when faced with suffering, he says, let the poor boast in their exaltation. What he means, that word exaltation, let the poor boast in their eternal riches. He's talking to believers. He says, hey, you are poor, boast in that which is in eternity. He said, but let the rich... In their humiliation, let the rich, those who don't trust in God, but are trusting in money. He said, what the the only thing they're going to exalt in is their momentary riches. 
Seems a bit backwards, does it not? But when you look at it, and, and in life, in the midst of suffering, uh, man, in the midst, like in real, true suffering, what you can see is the unhealth, the escape, and the destruction that grief and pain can wreak upon one's life, especially when money's involved. And if you don't believe me, like, um, and you haven't experienced it, um, have to deal with someone's estate and will after they pass away. You wouldn't believe how quickly the gloves come off. Like I've experienced it. I remember the, the night my grandfather died. Um, we're grieving. And he lived in a town where everyone in our family lived really close. And so within 30 minutes, everyone's there. And we're all kind of grieving and as they make their way in. But the thing is, is what I what I found is that really quickly, man, suffering, they, people began to try to escape suffering. They had to get away from it. And so what happens is I'm walking into the kitchen and I walk into a conversation, not 30 minutes to an hour after my grandfather has passed away. He's he they haven't even taken him out of the house yet. And there's a conversation going on where there's a member of my family that's giving financial tips for stock market prosperity. And I stopped and I looked at them and they kind of looked at me and they made some comments and I made some comments. But what I realize now is that in the moment, because in the moment I was angry, I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe the blindness. But now I hurt because what I realize is that in the moment, while they didn't believe they loved money, they believed that money was simply a tool of comfort to escape the current suffering they felt. They didn't know what to do with their emotions. And so what they started doing is they started talking about what they felt could give them comfort and safety and rescue. And it was found in the amount of money they had in the stock market. You see, to them, and if we're not careful, because I believe that we do this too. We tend to look at money. We we tend to look at the rich. Which, it, when you think about that, living in America, like we live in first world problems, right? Like, in comparison to third and fourth world countries, we are rich, right? But we can look to the rich as those who seem, we can, we can look at them and say, man, they must have it together. And we can begin to believe that, yeah, yeah, because of their means, they don't experience suffering. But James says no. You see, wisdom and suffering says money will do nothing to save your soul. Only dependence upon the grace of God. For the low, and he's speaking financially here. You see, the low realize they're spiritually bankrupt too. And that their only dependence can come from God. And so they are humbled before God. And they guess what? They can then rejoice in their exaltation. They can find hope in being God dependent because He owns it all. And He's stored up for us unimaginable riches in heaven. While the high, the rich, the financially uh, don't understand that they're also spiritually bankrupt. They in their pride trust in their riches to save them. He says they will be brought to utter humiliation. Which begs the question, is it wrong to be rich? No. 
Again, in comparison to third and fourth world countries, you are rich beyond measure. But you see, it's a threat to your faith for, and this is the second time I've been able to use this, in the words of the notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems, right? Yes. Not only that, but riches, and, and specifically earthly riches. What James says, he says, they're like a flower of the grass that's going to pass away. For in the scorching heat of the sun, the flower falls. And he says, it's, it, it's beauty perishes. Like, money's not beautiful anyways. It's just a bunch of old guys with wigs on it, right? Like, it's just like, you look at it and you're like, this is it? Like, even gold, you're just kind of like, yeah, that's it? But life, and by life I mean the life we live today, what we have to realize as a part of this is life is transitory and fleeting. It's here and then it's gone. Therefore, may we, as Jesus says, store up for ourselves not treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal, but treasures in heaven that cannot be destroyed and will be enjoyed forevermore. Guess what? There's a greater inheritance. Should you be, should you steward your money well? Yes, because guess what? It's not yours. It's God's. Steward it and be generous with it. It's not yours. But the only reason you can do that is because you have a greater hope of the inheritance that's coming. You can't take it with you. Guess what? Money can't buy your freedom, ultimate freedom. And it won't be enough to escape all suffering because no matter how good your insurance is, no matter how built up your 401k or IRA is established, death is the only suffering that cannot be bought by monetary means. It is only by faith in Christ that we find wisdom and riches that sustain us through suffering for they do not compare to the riches of the glory that are to come. And the reason we know this is because of the cross. He sacrificed everything. And so, if riches cannot wisely fix our suffering, what can? Well, let's continue to look at what can. Let's see if giving ourselves over to temptation and sin and blame shifting can by reading verses 12 through 15. It says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth Death. All right, so before we press into the root and heart behind temptation and sin, I want, I want to note, uh, man, there's this really quick, just portion. verse 12 just kind of really sticks out in the midst of all these lies being combated. You see, what, what James does is he gives this reminder in the midst of it. You see, I don't know if those to whom James is writing are much like me. I believe they are. But if I'm in the midst of suffering and I've been feeling that money could get me out, but then I'm told it can't, I'm going to despair a little bit. 
Which is why I believe before the transition, James tells, he, he says, hey, pick your head up. For blessed, and sounds a lot like his older brother. He says, blessed is he or she that remains. By remain, it's that they are dependent, that they carry that active faith. They remain steadfast, which points us back to the verses from last week, that it would have its full effect under trial. And he says, look, the result, the promise of that, the same promise that we have in knowing that when we ask for wisdom, God is good and will give it to us generously. He says this will result in the receiving of the crown of life that's promised by God. This crown of life is, is, is completeless, complete, that you lack nothing, which we're going to talk about at the end of our time today. And can we rest in that today? Can we find hope in this today? Can we live from this posture today? Because you see, as James begins to argue in verses 13 through 15, if we cannot, the result is simply succumbing to temptation, but, but uh, not, not simply uh, just succumbing to temptation, but casting false blame on God and others for every temptation we face. Guess what? Um, we are all blamers by nature. And some of you are like, no, I'm not. I don't, I don't verbally blame anyone in your heart, though. We're all like, it's always running like, you know, the narrative of your heart that's going on and playing out in your mind is often like we're blaming everyone, right? We're blaming ourselves like we blame God, we blame whoever. We do this all like since the fall in Genesis 3, which is where you see but after they hide because of their guilt and shame, what do they do? They immediately start pointing the finger. Eve made me do it. The serpent made me do it. So a couple of weeks ago, we were at the lake. And uh, on one of the days, all the ladies went on a spa day. And so me and Colin, we just lived that dad life. And we had 10 minions running around. And uh, man, I was like in my heart, I was probably blaming at times like, why, you know, but we had a really good time. It was great. And at the end of the day, we were like, OK, the, 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 the Tammy and the wives are about to come back. And we told the kids, hey, everyone, let's clean up the house. So the house looks nice. Right. And so we start cleaning up. And then I notice that there is a group of children together and they're moving a little frantically and kind of whispering. And if you know that, that's bad. OK. And so I see them huddled together. And so I start walking over. Well, it's kind of like uh, if you go into a dark room that has roaches in it and you turn the light on, they all scattered except for the few that couldn't get away. They don't have any escape. And so they're like bouncing off one another. So I'm walking over and what I see is one of them catches the eye and they, you know, a third of them are gone. And the other ones are left and they're just bumping into each other. And I'm like, guys, what's going on? And I see one of my nephews is holding his finger and he's kind of starting to cry a little bit. And I'm like, what's going on? And I look and he, there is a zip tie on his finger and his finger is very, very purple. <laughs> and, and I'm like, what happened? Immediately, if they would have had guns, they would have just shot each other, right? Like it was like, boom, 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 boom. You know, like throwing each other. They did it. They did it. Like everyone is casting blame on each other. And I'm like, no, stop. What happened? One of them says, well, 
He did it. I'm not going to name any names, right? They're starting to get old enough to where I don't want to embarrass anyone. He did it. And the person that was blamed said, I did not. And so I said, well, we'll figure this out. Give me just a second. And so I take my nephew over and it's either, hey, we're going to cut this joker off with a knife or if we can find some scissors. I was able to work it off his finger and I sent him on his way. And then I go into the other room and the one that's been blamed is upset. Hey, what's going on? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. He did it. He did it to himself. <laughs> okay, let's go talk about this. So I get them together and I say, hey, you put that thing on your finger? And the first thing was, no. I said, did you? Yes. <laughs> said, Bro, don't, don't blame others for your... Your mess, <laughs> like your unwise actions, okay? Like, don't do that, right? But when it comes to suffering, and more specifically when it comes to our response to suffering, which is often that we fall into temptation that leads to sin because we want to what? We, know, we want to escape, we want to numb, and we want to avoid what we're dealing with. Man, we are the best. And I'm not saying that because we're from Texas and we are the best. Like, this is a collective thing. This is the one thing that everyone in every other state, like, it's like, yes, you're a part of this. Like, we are collectively the best at blaming. We are collectively the best at blaming others and blaming God for our sinful responses. You see, in the culture of James's day, the act of blaming the pagan gods for any and all suffering, like, that was typical. Because guess what? The pagan gods of this time period, they were fickle. They were vengeful and they would change like they believed they could they would just change their mind out of nowhere. And the people of God who are around this culture, they see this and because they've seen it and on the surface, like what it is, it's an out for them to be able to cast blame. It looks pretty good. It seems like an easy out, but James warns against it. What he says, he says, no one should say when they're tempted to sin in the context of in any context, specifically, again, he's talking about suffering here. He says, you shouldn't say that you're being tempted by God. And his grounds for this, what he argues, he says, God, who is holy, meaning that he always does what is good, right, and perfect. He says, God cannot be tempted. Therefore, he cannot tempt anyone. You see, a perfect God who tempts others towards imperfection would not be perfect and in turn would not be God. But what we do know is that while God does not tempt us, He does test us in order, as one writer states, to prove and improve our character. And this is the story of Job, right? This is the story of all who follow Christ. And so he lays out this definitive statement when talking about the character of God in the midst of our suffering. And then he presses into the, both the source and the course of temptation that leads to sin. And so listen to what he says about the source. The answer, according to James, is not the devil. It's not other people. It's not God. It's your own heart. That's right. You see, while Satan is ever tempting us to sin, the root of our problem is our own evil hearts. And that should not surprise us. But guess what? It does, right? 
You ever get confronted in your sin? And you're like, me? No. You ever like have to confront, like if you have children or someone, and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm perfect. They, again, they made me do it. The darn devil again. Romans 5 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, our nature apart from the grace of God is sin. That's our bent. And James could not be more explicit. He says, The source of your sin is not God, others, or the devil. It is you. One of the ways I like to explain this that I've heard that I think fits really well is that at the end of the day, you are not a liar because you lie. You lie because you are a liar at the root of your heart. It's not, well, I didn't lie any today, so I'm not a liar today. I'll maybe tomorrow or the next day. No, it's like, no, our natural bent is we lie. And guess what? Usually we're constantly just lying to ourselves. And so we see the source is our heart. But look at the course. Like uh, James, and I just want to read it again really quickly. It says this. In verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, this is the course, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, bring forth, brings forth death. You see, what we get this picture of is childbearing. And there's two births. There's a desire giving birth to sin and sin giving birth to death. And I think we all know that. But James is actually going deeper for the root of uh, that he gives uh, this this word for bring forth. You see, the idea here in something being brought forth is that in our lives, sin grows very rapidly. In terms of childbirth, like the embryo grows to maturity really quickly. And just as in pregnancy, once the child reaches full term, something must be birth, but you see the horror is, is what's birth is not life, it's death. And this death is spiritual and eternal. And, and I think we miss this because we tend to make light of sin as well as continue to make little of Christ's sacrifice. May we would do well to get serious about sin instead of casting it off and blaming it, blaming others for it. For the wages of sin is death, but, and this is the defining line, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ and Christ alone. For He became sin who knew no sin. He was tempted as we are, and yet He was without sin. He, Jesus, took our sin upon Himself and experienced the just punishment we deserve. Therefore, there's a way out. R. Kent Hughes says that Jesus is the course of life that triumphs over temptation. And apart from faith in Christ and His life, His grace being lavished upon you, you and I are forever dead in our trespasses and sins. And at the end of the day, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We are responsible. But He has made a way by taking responsibility on our behalf. And yet... Until you admit to blame and confess responsibility by way of repentance, there can be no forgiveness. So riches will not fix our suffering. Succumbing to temptation and blaming others will not fix it. Let's look at line number three in closing, which is that in the midst of suffering, God must not be really that good. By looking at verses 16 through 18, it says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, so all of us, because we're so often focused on the preservation and security of self, when faced with trials and suffering, even as followers of Jesus, we can begin to believe the lie that God is not good. Can we not? You see, the reality is, according to one writer, it is impossible to walk with God if he can do nothing but question his goodness. And it's with this logic, it's this type of logic that's infiltrated the Christians in the early church to whom James is writing. Not only have they tried to flee, not only have they had to flee the comforts of home to lands that are not their own, they find themselves still being persecuted and taken advantage of. And so while they might be wishing for the comforts of riches, and also they might be blaming God for their suffering and sin, on the other hand, they're wrestling with whether or not God is even good. Again, James combats this with a wise warning. He says, don't be deceived. I also love that in the midst of the warning, he connects himself so that those who he's writing to, he says, look, beloved brothers. What he's saying, they're saying, hey, guys, like, don't be deceived. I know your struggle. But believe this right now, we share the same identity, one of hope in Christ, which draws us to realize the goodness of God. And guess what, church, like that is our job for one another. There are going to be moments where we as individuals are going to struggle to believe that God is good and we need brothers and sisters in Christ to come and say, no, He is. He's good. You know He's good. James says, for every good and perfect gift is from above. What that means is James is saying, look, every bit of goodness that you ever experience is from God. The literal translation is God not only gives, but that all of his giving, all of it is perfectly and completely good. He says that it comes down as he comes down as the father of lights. Now, we struggle to maybe understand the full extent of this because we have electricity and light and uh, man, we could even we can control it like even in here, you can dim it up and down, right? Like we experience that, but that's not who God is. He's the He's the creator of light, and He is nothing but goodness and light. He goes further, he says, in whom there's no variation or shadow. You see, we are on earth and, and man, we experience, I just said, we could turn the lights up and down. You wake up in the morning, the sun rises. Guess what? It goes overhead at noon. And then what happens in the evening? The sun sets and then it's dark. Not so with God. God is always high noon. There's no variation. There's no shadow. He is light. God, according to James and according to the good news of the gospel, is infinitely and utterly good, meaning that guess what? God's not growing in goodness like. It's like, well, he's good today and he's going to be better tomorrow. No, he's he's the same goodness we experience and grow in that understanding of that goodness. But he is who he is. He's unchanging. And so we get this macro level picture of his goodness that should bring us hope in the midst of suffering. But then in closing, James shares that this goodness is found in our lives in a much more personal level. 
You see, through Jesus' good and finished work, we receive grace and mercy through faith. Again, the Word put on flesh and dwelt among a broken and suffering people. For we, by God's grace, who once walked in darkness, have seen what? We've seen a great light. He came and suffered for us. And just as these to whom James is writing, he says, hey, you, you, like, you who are suffering, you who are in the midst of trial, he says, you're the first fruit creation. The first fruits of God's ultimate work of good through His Son. And what we know today is that we who are in Christ today can find hope that His goodness is still good. It's never changing. And therefore, in the midst of suffering, we don't have to look elsewhere. Today, you can rest and cry out for wisdom to a God who freely gives to those who ask in faith. Because while we in and of ourselves are not good enough, He is. That should bring hope for today. Not only that, that should make us wrestle with where our eyes are turning in the midst of trials. So I'm going to have Jordan come back up. I mean, I I just, I mean, I think as I think about a response for today, is that one, that we would rejoice in the hope that we have in Jesus, that He is enough and that He is good, but that maybe today, Maybe for you, you need to spend some time late, like you're in the midst of trials, or maybe you just know, man, my common response to trials are these certain things, these lies that I run to. And I want to encourage us to lay those lies at the feet of Jesus in repentance, cry out for wisdom and faith. Today, for you, if it's money or you fill in the blank, if you believe something other than the grace of God will fix your problems, you need to lay it at His feet today. Maybe today it's giving your, you find yourself wanting to give yourself over to the numbing power of sin that will mask your problems. Maybe today all you do is find yourself casting blames for your issues and your sin and your brokenness. And at the end of the day, all we can do before God is humbly say, God, it's my heart and I need to repent. I need to receive your grace. I need to receive what... And let me experience and understand more fully what you've purchased for me. That I don't have to blame. That you took all of the blame. You didn't deserve it. You took it. Maybe lastly, because you're in this trial, you feel like God is tempting you or God must not be good and you need to put your faith elsewhere. Man, lay those things at the feet of Jesus today. So that we might be a people that walk wisely, that respond in wisdom, that respond in worship, that that can cry out, man, uh, blessed is he who's going to receive, like we will receive the crown of life. And so I want to invite you to do that. And if you're a follower of Jesus, say we have communion up here at the front. We want to invite you to come and share in the reality and the, the, the picture of the finished work of Jesus that he came. That he's the one we can look to. We can celebrate. We can trust that He's good because He gave Himself. So I want to invite you to do that and we'll sing together. But God, I pray that You would move in our hearts. Holy Spirit, that You would move in power. That You would remove those areas of 
lies that we run to, those things that we seek to trust in other than you in the midst of struggle and trial. God, that we would cling to your grace, knowing that you're holding us. That you give us life and hope and peace. And we can rest in you. And that through that rest, we can find rejoicing no matter the circumstance. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.